All right, we continue on in Joshua. Joshua chapter 9, and I wonder if you heard me to read these, and besides saying I'm really glad I don't have to pronounce those names, if you wonder why in the world is this passage in the Bible, this deception of the Gibeonites, you, you understand the story, right? Let, let's just go through the story very quickly. I want you to see that there is a thesis statement to this sermon, and this is what I want to say to you. I want you to hear that God's law reveals His character. No doubt, God's law reveals His character. God's oath reveals his heart. This is the thesis statement again. God's law reveals his character. God's oath reveals his heart. How are we supposed to see this? All right, here's the story. You've got the Israelites, and they have just defeated this little small town called Ruin, called Ai. Do you remember that? Do you remember how they went and tried to conquer Ai in the beginning? And they weren't able to conquer Ai because Achan had stolen some of the devoted things and hidden them and taken them for himself. And so the Israelites lost 36 people in battle. Not only that, they fled. And not only that, all of the other kings of the clans of the Canaanites saw this. And we read in those first two verses here, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowlands all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. The very thing that Joshua was afraid was going to happen. The very thing that he tore his robes and went to God and said, look, these people are going to come up against us. And what's going to become of your great name? That very thing begins to happen here. But not to everybody. Not to everybody. There is this group from Gibeon, the Gibeonites, who come to the Israelites and they trick them. I could ask you what they wore, and hopefully you heard me to say it over and over and over again. Worn out. Worn out. Tired, old, beat-up clothing, wineskins, bread, sandals. You name it, it was worn out. And they had created this picture that they've come from a faraway distance. And they tricked the leaders of Israel, and Joshua into making a covenant with them. Remember, we had already learned from the, the, the commands that came before that if the Israelites went through land getting to the promised land, they could make treaties with those lands. They didn't have to uh, devote those lands to destruction. They could travel through them as long as people would allow them. But the promised land was different. This place where God would dwell and among whom there would be no other gods. And so the demand that everything would be devoted to destruction is as much about God and His glory being known without any other competing gods as it was about those who worshipped those gods and refused to bow the knee to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But here in the midst of this, we get this picture of the Gibeonites. Remember, my thesis statement for you today and for us today is that God's law reveals His character. This law in particular here, this devoted to destruction, and it's God's oath that reveals His heart. I want us to see that in two ways. First, through the gospel via the Gibeonites, is what I've called it. And secondly, to see how the Gibeonites, these people who cast themselves on the mercy of God became a lived testimony for the Israelites of who their God was. 
This is a fantastic Thanksgiving passage. I had an opportunity to preach a Thanksgiving service uh, for a local private school this week. And during which time, uh, I was telling a story to some friends of mine. These folks have become very dear to me. I long for them to come to know Jesus and, and maybe even be able to worship with us one day, which would be great. And I was telling them a story about how we found our dog. I mean, completely unrelated story, right? But in that story, there's this scene, and I'll tell you about it later if you want to know about it, about where I was supposed to recognize the owner of the dog. And I didn't recognize the owner of the dog, but the owner of the dog went to such extreme measures to help me recognize the owner that I was like, yes, of, of course I recognize you. And I wasn't thinking about the story, and all of a sudden, this friend of mine who, again, I, I long for her to come to faith, she looked at me and she goes, huh, that's, that's good to know, so even pastors lie. Pastors lie. And I'm like, oh, man. And, and I was nailed. She's exactly right. The language that we use, the flippancy with which we deal with the truth came full force to me. Another episode of my week that oriented my mind around this idea of seeing in this passage the thesis that it is the law of God that demonstrates his character. It's the oath of God that demonstrates his heart is when another friend of mine says, you know something, I, I like the church, I like the things that we're about, but I just don't understand why justice has to be, why there has to be a judgment. Why can't God just say, I forgive you, let bygones be bygones, and we go out that everybody's the same and you're just forgiven. That one human being doesn't have to experience judgment where another one doesn't. And as I thought about that, I thought about this passage. And I wanted you to see how both of those are addressed. In this thesis statement that God's law reveals his character and God's oath reveals his heart. I want us to look first at the gospel through the Gibeonites, and then I want to show you how the Gibeonites were a lived testimony for Israel. So look at it with me, if you will. This is interesting because the Gibeonites don't act like the rest of the united front of the kings of the different clans of the Canaanites, right? We read those names. You can read them again. Um, but these guys created this united front and said, ah, see, Israel's not so strong. We'll crush them. They almost lost to Ai. Sure, they came back and beat them a second time because they figured it out, but we will crush them. Not so the Gibeonites. Now, it's hard to understand, but the Gibeonites were very close to where Israel was at this time. If you look down after the treaty and the covenant is made, it says that after the third day they found out that the Gibeonites were actually their neighbors. And then in verse 17, it says that on the third day, they went to the cities to attack them. The people did. They were really frustrated. The Gibeonites were exactly next door <laughs> to the Israelites at this point in Gilgal. It's not like they were three days journey away. It's that on the third day, these guys' hometowns were so close through the woods, as it were, that they were able to go there even on that very same day when they found out the Gibeonites had tricked them and they were going to go and they were going to lay them down. And you have to ask the question, what motivated the Gibeonites to come and cast themselves at the feet of the Israelites, to portray themselves as a nation that is far away or a people far away, to have all of the things that are worn out and to trick the Israelites and say, make a covenant, make a treaty with us, swear to us that we can live. 
You have to wonder. Well, you've got to read chapter 8 that we skipped last week because after the defeat of Ai, God reorganizes and reinstates and they celebrate again the covenant that God has with his people. They come up on these two mountains that are in that vicinity and there they read the law of Moses all over again, the instructions of Moses of what they're supposed to do. And do you think that the Israelites were the only ones that set out spies? It doesn't make sense, right? It makes a lot more sense that the Gibeonites would have sent out spies as well. They would have known what was going on with the Israelites who were their neighbors. And so the Gibeonites, they fake this identity and they come to them and they say it point blank in verse 6, don't they? They say this, we have come from a distant country. Not true. That's false, right? We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. And it says, but the men of Israel said to the Hivites, now the Gibeonites were part of this larger group of people called the Hivites. They were a clan within the Hivites. And, and, and the, uh, the Israelites said to them, the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They knew that it was God's command to drive out all of the clans that were in Canaan at that time because they worshipped idols. And God said, we're driving out everything that does not bow its knee to me. And so then they look at Joshua in verse 8, and they say to him, we are your servants. And Joshua said, who are you and where did you come from? And then it goes through the litany again of what they did and what they saw. Ask, me, ask yourself, does this sound familiar? Because they said to him in verse 9, we come from a very distant country. Our servants have... Uh, from a very distant country, your servants have come. And then they say this, because of the name of Yahweh your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shehan, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, so our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. They explain that this bread that is now crumbled and old came out of their ovens warm when they left. They poured it on, didn't they? They poured it on. But the thing that the Gibeonites said is, we have heard of your God and all that he has done. Where have you heard this before already in Joshua? You've heard this somewhere else. You've heard it from the lips of Rahab, haven't you? When the spies find their way to Jericho and Rahab says, ah, I've heard of you. I've heard of all that your God has done when you were leaving Egypt. And we begin to see the motivation of what's happened. Well, their motivation gets unfolded even more and unpacked even more once the treaty is cut. Now, it's interesting in verse 14, this is what we see in verse 14. It says this, So the men, so the Israelites, took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They didn't just take their provisions to take them. They took them to inspect them, to say, from the best of our ability and knowledge, is it true that these guys have come from a long way off? And they didn't go and seek counsel from the Lord, but they used their own wisdom. And this is what it says in verse 
15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now you heard the story unpacked. The story unpacked is that the Gibeonites had deceived the Israelites. And so after three days, they find this out. The Israelites, the people are so mad that they go and march on the Gibeonite towns. But the leaders in Joshua tell the Israelites, you cannot do that. Stop. You cannot kill them because we swore by the name of our God that we would not. And so he finally stopped the people. But then Joshua goes back and he goes back in verse 22 and he says to the Gibeonites, why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, I don't think that he's complaining to them there. He is trying to understand what was your motivation? What did you see? And look at what the Gibeonites say. Now, therefore, or Joshua says, now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And the Gibeonites in verse 24 answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants. Listen to this. Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Where did they hear that? Joshua had just read the entirety of the law of Moses before his people with this language. And now the Gibeonites use this language coming back. And this is what he, they said. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hands. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. The Gibeonites had heard of what God had done and believed his word. That says that we knew for a certainty that Yahweh, your God, had given you this land and that we would be destroyed if we resisted you. And because we feared for our lives, we cast ourselves upon you and we beg for mercy. Do what is right in your eyes. They begged that they would be brought into a treaty and into a covenant. And what we read is that Joshua has said, we swore to you on the name of God himself that we wouldn't kill you. And the Gibeonites thought, now we are safe. They cast themselves upon the mercy of the Lord. They knew that they were devoted for destruction. They had heard that, but they cast themselves on the mercy of the Lord. That's what these Gibeonites did. Do with us whatever is right in your sight. But we have turned away from our people, the Hivites. We have turned away from our God and we bow before your God and we recognize him as the God who saves. And here we see the gospel according to the Gibeonites. The gospel is an historic event when the Christians use it in the sense of talking to you about the gospel, that God sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins, an event that took place. If we were to say shorthand, how do you say the gospel? We would say God saves sinners. God saves sinners. 
That's the knowledge of the gospel in the Old Testament that becomes clear in the person and the work of Jesus. And the Gibeonites got the idea that God saves sinners. And we're devoted to destruction because of who we are and who we worship. But your God saves those who are against him. And they cast themselves on them. And they depended on the oath. The oath that they had sworn in the name of God that he would save them. And Joshua heard them say that and he said, well, you know, you're now cursed and you're going to be servants. And surely the Gibeonites would have said, do with us what is right in your eyes. They became servants who cut wood and carried water for the house of God, the tabernacle. And there... They spent their lives participating and helping in the sacrifices of God to not only recognize His glory and His majesty, but for the forgiveness of sins that would only be fulfilled when the perfect Lamb of God would come, Jesus Christ. The Gibeonites, in their cursed state, found themselves in the presence of God, helping the sons of Korah, whose responsibility it was as priests to carry the ark around, to set up the altars, and to offer sacrifices. The same sons of Korah who were able to sing in Psalm 84, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And imagine what the Gibeonites experienced in that. These Gibeonites who, for their lives, many of whom, as Joshua says, some of you will only ever be woodcutters and carriers of water to support the worship of God in his temple. And the Gibeonites who cast themselves on the oath of God found in him mercy beyond belief. You see, Joshua isn't about genocide. Joshua is about the unveiling of who God is. His law that he gives and he commands the Israelites to obey speaks to his character. But his oath speaks to his heart. And you wonder, how are those things reconciled? How does that work? The second thing that I want you to look at is how the Gibeonites became lived testimony before the Israelites. Pick it up again in verse 15 with me, if you will. It says here in verse 15 that some of them, or verse 14, some of the Israelite men took some of the, some of the provisions of the Gibeonites um, but they did not seek the counsel of the Lord. They, they sought their own wisdom to figure out, are these guys from a long way away or not a long way away? And they decided, hey, look, they're from a long way away, and so we, we're not going to sin by making a covenant with them. You know, you can't say that they didn't act in one sense good faith according to the law of God, but they didn't counsel with the Lord either here. And then in verse 15, it goes on to say again, and Joshua made peace with them. And made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And you read further on that they swore by the name of their God. They swore by Yahweh. The leaders made this hasty decision. 
And it puts them right in between God's justice and right in between God's oath, God's promise. And the Israelites are mad. The Israelites are mad. Listen to what it says that they did after that time. At the end of three days, in verse 16, after they had made a covenant with them, the Gibeonites, they, the Israelites, heard that the Gibeonites were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. That very day they found out, they took off and they said, we're going to destroy these cities. But the leaders of the people of Israel, but it says in verse 18 rather, but the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to the Gibeonites by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. This is a unique word, this idea of murmuring in every other context. In, in Exodus and in Numbers, they're always murmuring against God and against God's leadership. But here, they murmur against the people, the leaders of Israel and Joshua, and they say, you have put us in an untenable situation. We have been commanded by God according to his law, according to his character, that every one of our neighbors is supposed to be destroyed or run out. And here, we are not allowed to attack because you made an oath with our neighbors. The conflict here of God's justice and yet God's name being given an oath of protection. And in verses 17 and 22, it follows, you see the conversation that happens between Joshua and the Israelites. And you begin to ask themselves, what is going to happen? What is going to happen with the Gibeonites? Is it possible that God is going to protect them? These Gibeonites who cast themselves onto Yahweh, what's going to happen to them? Well, the short term, you can see that Joshua said, look, when you give an oath, when you speak with God's name, when you speak representing Him, that oath stands and you cannot go against that oath lest the wrath of God come upon you. And so the Gibeonites are protected. They're not just protected then. The Israelites see the Gibeonites every time they come to offer sacrifices and they're reminded what the Gibeonites did and how they got underneath the protection of the Lord. Not by coming and keeping His law, but by casting themselves on his mercy. And they see the Gibeonites every time they offer sacrifices. Not only that, but the Gibeonites continue to serve in the temple of the Lord all the way through into its construction. Do you know the Gibeonites show up in 2 Samuel? Saul at one point decides he wants to destroy the Gibeonites. He wants to get rid of them because the Gibeonites represent this idea of mercy as opposed to discipline. Saul says, I want to get rid of the Gibeonites. And so he kills some of the Gibeonites. And God actually sends a drought on Israel for two years. And it's not until David pleads with him and says, what has happened that it's made known to him that Saul had attempted to rid the Gibeonites from the temple, breaking the oath that they lived under, that they rested under. It's an amazing thing to see, but one of the people that served on what I would call the special operations force for David, 
These individuals called their mighty men. The leader of those mighty men, guess what? Gibeonite. A Gibeonite. Again, the Gibeonites existing through the Israelite, the Israelites' history, reminding them over and over that this God who had shown his character precisely and definitely in the giving of his law shows his heart by oath. And not just that, but when the Israelites return from Babylon, the Gibeonites come back with them. In fact, the Gibeonites are recognized as some of those who return from Babylon and work on rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the temple. The long history of the Gibeonites who had been convinced of who God was and who had cast themselves upon his mercy, knowing that that's a God who saves. And there's no escaping justice except to cast yourself upon him. Also, these Gibeonites who lived as lived testimonies before the Israelites all of their days. What do you hear? You hear this statement over and over that God's law reveals his character. God is holy and he's just. To deny justice on the basis of our perception as human beings that some human beings are going to receive justice and other human beings aren't going to receive justice, so why don't we just wipe the slate clean and don't worry about it, is to misunderstand that justice is in the very character of God. That justice isn't about comparing human beings to human beings, but comparing humanity to God in whose image we are created. And God makes his character known through his law. But he reveals his heart through his oath. And here, in the midst of this season in Canaan, when the Israelites are beginning to know more and more about their God, God reminds them, my character is distinct and holy. But my heart is for anyone who will cast themselves upon me. We get this passage in Hebrews, and I want to look at it with you really quickly as we close. I want you to hear this because it is amazing. In this passage of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is talking about this oath-giving God. And he writes about it in nature of when God gave an oath to Abraham and he swore to Abraham, because of what you have done, you haven't withheld Isaac from me. You are willing to offer your son, then I'm going to bless you. And listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. And when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained a promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, the unchangeable nature of his purpose and himself 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What is the hope here? The hope in the face of a God whose justice is demanded and will be met is that that God is a God of promise who says, I am the God who will save you. And when God wanted to show it even more convincingly, he guaranteed it with an oath. It's technical language, but what that language is, is he interposed an oath. He interposed himself. He said to Abraham, I swear by myself that I am going to do it. He interposed himself. We use that language, don't we? We use it in one of the songs that we love to sing. And that song is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And this is what it says. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. You see, for God to take his justice seriously and to declare by his name that he will save anyone who casts themselves onto him, who trust in him, he had to interpose his precious blood. He had to give us Christ. And here in the conquest of Canaan is a picture of these people, the Gibeonites, who got it, who saw it, who took their condition as being devoted to destruction, who took their sins seriously and cast themselves on God's judgment. And what was happening? Their joy was fulfilled. They said, better is, man, not a problem for me. Better is one day in the court of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents, the, wit, the riches of wealth. This is an amazing picture of how we see God's love, law that reveals his character and his oath that reveals his heart. In closing, there's a story about that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The writer of that song is a guy named Robert Robinson. And it's understood that by the end of his life, he had decided that he wanted to vacillate on this idea of justice. This idea that sacrificial death of, of, of the Son of God was needed to cover for his sins. And there are some that even thought that he had become a Unitarian. One who said it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe in something outside of yourself, as long as you recognize that you worship, worship what you want. And the story says that one day, Robertson found himself in the presence of a woman who was hymning, humming, excuse me, humming, come thou fount of every blessing. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. And she looked at him 
and she said, what do you think? Do you like the song that I'm humming? And it says that with tears he replied to her, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feeling that I had then. I want you to know that God did not give us a thousand worlds of anything created that we might be strongly encouraged to trust in Him. But He gave us His Son. He interposed His precious blood that we might understand who our God is. A God by whose law His very character is defined. And by His oath, His heart is revealed. My simple question to you is will you cast yourself on him anew and afresh. Joshua means God saves. And even here, we see that with the Gibeonites. Let's pray.